Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Business Masterclass podcast from Love Wimbledon Business Improvement District and Merton Chamber of Commerce. I'm Craig Hurring, Chief Executive of Love Wimbledon. This is the second episode in a series of exclusive masterclasses we have developed for businesses to discover tangible solutions to some of their most pressing current business challenges. In this edition, our subject is building workplace well-being. We're exploring recruitment, retention and well-being to enable businesses to develop more effective plans to address these critical workplace concerns. Our guest speakers at this event were Delina O'Neill, a senior consultant and HR business leader with the Business Clan, Omar Kasim, head of employment law at Peacock and Co Solicitors, and T. Wu, co-founder and chief technology officer at Pink Squid, a multiple award-winning creative agency focused on employer brand. We were also joined by Katrina Hayes-Brown from the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, or CIPD, the professional body for the HR sector. The event sparked lively discussions around well-being in the workplace, effective internal communication, and how to achieve better business engagement across organisations. I do hope you enjoy this episode of the Business Masterclass podcast. So as Craig said, our aim with these masterclasses is really to provide everyone here with sort of a toolbox of insight that give you a big perspective, perhaps um, make you think about things that maybe you hadn't thought about before. Also share some sort of relevant best practices, things that you can put into practice yourself as a business owner, um, and then ultimately to share in the trusted support and the advice that you get from networking with our local business community. That ultimately is the role of the chamber. So just to set the scene, I was quite amazed that um, some of the statistics, 2.5 million working age adults in the UK are now on long-term sick. So this cost to employers for this poor mental health in the UK increased 25% in the last year to 56 billion. It costs too much and it's just not an option for businesses not to prioritize and to do nothing. So employees' mental health and resilience is really paramount. And this really brings me to introduce our first speaker, Dolina O'Neill, who is here to share her insights with us. Um, So I want to start with a quote from Theodore Roosevelt, who had a lot of foresight, it seems, into the world of work today. And that is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Okay, get that? People spend roughly 90,000 hours at work in their lifetime. That's a third of their life. And that's an awful long time to spend somewhere where they don't feel cared about. In the past three years, we've all been through COVID, war in Europe, rises in costs of living, financial hardship, and the uncertainty continues on for people, and that's not a great place to be. So support and well-being for people at the moment and in the workplace has never been more urgent. Look around you in the room. Can you tell who might be suffering with mental ill health? Probably not, but one in six people in the UK at the moment are suffering with mental ill health. It's the second highest burden of disease in the UK at the moment. So you can be guaranteed, if it's not you in the audience, it's somebody you know, and it's somebody they know, and so on and so on and so on. That's a lot of people. 
Now that ultimately affects the resilience levels in people. Our emotional well-being has taken a bashing over the last three years and resilience levels are at an all-time low. In fact, if you could get a machine that could register bounce-back ability, I reckon that would be registering pretty low for people at the moment. Unfortunately, due to the lack of resilience people have, people are then suffering from burnout. You might have heard of burnout, um, where people just can't take it anymore. Burnout has went up by 5% over the past year. And that's just for people who have actually registered burnout with their doctor. So there's a lot more people suffering um, with burnout. Sadly, a lot of HR predictions have come true around the importance of well-being. I think a lot of people have been banging that drum for a long time. Listen up, listen up. People are suffering. Employers need to take notice and take action. Businesses, sadly, are behind the curve in this. And so we are here today to try to convince you to take some action when you leave this room today. Employee expectations, what we call the psychological contracts between employees and employers have changed. People are looking for employers who care about them now. People are looking for jobs with purpose. Has anybody heard about this thing called the Great Resignation? This is another HR prediction. So people at the moment are sat in their roles, waiting for the economy to settle down. Once things look brighter and better, people will leave. People will leave to organisations who show they care. People are in search of purpose and in fact one and a half times more women are leaving work in search of purpose. And this is cross-generational, this need. From Generation Z entering the workforce all the way through to people who have retired but have to think about going back to work now because of rises in cost of living. And by the way, that's a top tip for your talent pool. You should be fishing in 50 plus and retired people looking to get back into the workplace. The war for talent is on for sure and when people start to move you need to be sure to do all that you can to try and retain your best people. So how do you spot the signs then of people who are suffering with mental ill health? You couldn't earlier on when you looked around the room. When you're working in a hybrid workforce it's even more difficult where people are behind their computers at home. But getting to know your people will help you to understand the small changes in their behaviour that will alert you to ask them are you okay? Do you need any help? Can I offer you any support? It could be somebody's a bit more irritable at work, moody, weepy, um, not turning up for their meetings on time, showing up late, having sporadic sick days. All these things should be red flags for you to ask people, are you okay? Now, there are many wellbeing strategies out there and a lot of employers are put off by wellbeing strategies because it's got strategy in the word. They think, oh, it's too complicated. Oh, it's too expensive. You know, we're not going to get involved in all of that. But it needn't be. It's actually quite straightforward just to get the basics right. What you need to do, first of all, is think about fostering a, um, fostering a culture of trust, communication and collaboration. As leaders and business owners, you must be role models to get the conversation started in the workplace. Open up, be vulnerable, talk to people about your own experience about mental health. That will really inspire people in the workplace to open up to you in return. Have regular check-ins with people, not just the monthly one-to-ones or the team meetings, but just pick up the phone, call them on Zoom if they're you're working remotely. See if, see if they're doing okay, what's up with them. Get to know your people, so then you get to know when people are struggling. Give people signposts at work for help. 
you know, Mind is a fantastic organization that have hundreds of free resources online for you to get started. So you can log on, have a look at Mind and offer people free phone telephone numbers if they can't talk to someone at work or at home. There's lots of things you can do for free online using mind.gov.uk. ACAS is another avenue you can go down to supply people with the signposts they need when they're in need. Recognise people's achievements at work. Offer people learning opportunities, which will build self-confidence and self-esteem. All of these things will, have to, um, will help to you to build resilience within your, within your team. Mindfulness is another great idea that you can um, take away with you. And it's easy to practice mindfulness, just 10 minutes a day. Um, I actually launched mindfulness within um, Barclays a few years ago when mind mindfulness first came up. And I ran it for a thousand people. And it was fantastic. And a lot of them took that away with them, downloaded his Headspace app and still practice to this day mindfulness in the workplace and at home. So building resilience, there's lots and lots of benefits to, to this. Builds engagement, work happiness, better mental health, better productivity. But more importantly than everything else is look after your own well-being. It's very important as a leader to present the best version of you to your people at work. And ask yourself this at the end of what I'm, what I'm talking about today is what, what happens if you do nothing? So what would happen if you did nothing? Well, it doesn't bear thinking about. Thank you, Delina. Uh, some really interesting insights and tips and very practical things to do there, which I find yeah, as a chief executive of a small business myself, very helpful. We don't have an HR function. How do you deal with these things? So these kind of things I think are really useful to us all. So we've heard about the kind of behavioural framework and obviously we also want to talk about the legal perspective on what's happening. So I'm now delighted to introduce our next speaker, Omar Kasim. Omar's Head of Employment Law at Peacock & Co Solicitors who are based in Wimbledon Village, as I'm sure many of you know. Welcome, Omar. Um, I will throw a couple of statistics at you, a couple that, that Delina did leave out for me, thank you. Uh, which is, um, in 2020 to 2021, almost a million um, workers reported as having suffered um, depression or anxiety. And those are obviously just the ones reporting. I often find that that situation is very much a tip of the iceberg scenario, but increasingly, the fact the numbers are going up, does that mean that people are suffering more or does that mean people are reporting more? You'd like to think um, certainly that the awareness means that people are coming forward now. I wanted to, to quote um, um, what mental health is considered by World Health Organization, which describes mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to her or his community. Now, mental health can, can range from anxiety and depression, which are the most common conditions, to severe conditions such as bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Um, but as employers, of course, you might find that people with the same mental health condition can experience different symptoms, and as such, the way that we approach it for our employees has to be tailored to their individual needs. So we talked about what the employer's legal obligation is to ensure health and safety of employees at work. I mentioned the Health and Safety Act 1974, which provided um, the, the uh, uh, basic physical 
um, the requirements that employers needed to put into place. Uh, there's also protection from, from Harassment Act in 1997. I'm going to check, test you all on, on the dates in the, uh, later on, so please pay attention. Um, and then, very importantly for us, and, and what is the bedrock certainly for employment laws, is the, the Equality Act 2010, which, which recognises a number of protected characteristics, um, and the one, obviously, that's most pertinent here is, is disability, because, uh, I'll, and I'll come to that in a second, is how, how mental health is very much falls under the, under the umbrella of, of what is considered disability, um, which comes a lot of, often to, as, as a surprise to employers because um, our perception of disability is po possibly a more traditional one. The, the disability discrimination provisions in the Equality Act uh, encompass many mental illnesses, um, and um, what is considered disability under the under, under Equality Act is uh, an employee, an, an individual's ability uh, um, to carry out um, the normal day-to-day -day tasks. And um, if they're if they're suffering un under a, of, in a condition which has a substantial and long-term effect on their ability to carry out those tasks, then they'll fall onto they'll fall in under the definition of disability. Now. Once they fall under that def definition, um, an the, or you as employers have a responsibility to make reasonable adjustments to accommodate their needs, um, and that includes obviously those with mental health conditions. Um, so, um, as I said earlier, COVID changed the playing field very much. Um, in, in, in one aspect of it as well is, is, is the fact that people, for example, you've got long-term COVID sufferers who remain clinically at high risk uh, and, and have, have suffered great mental difficulties as a result of that. And what we did to introduce, to try and um, address that, for example, where you had hybrid working policies, um, which we, which um, we, a lot of employers have, have now uh, addressed by, by in, in implementing those hybrid working policies, which in themselves are a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, of course, people recognise that working from home, have, having the ability to, for example, not having to travel at peak hours, or, or perhaps needing other, other, um, other adjustments to, to help them, um, found that obviously working from home offered them a, a degree of comfort, etc. But with that, of course, as employers, we had a duty to ensure do they have the right equipment at home? Are they able to, have we carried out a, a risk assessment for them at home? So th th those are the sort of things that, that, um, that COVID um, highlighted very much for us. And so what, what I'll, I'll discuss now briefly is how mental health, um, the, the sort of issues that we'd be thinking about, um, whether it's directly discriminating or indirectly discriminating against, against um, employees by virtue of, uh, for example, insisting that they come in at a certain time of day. I touched on that now, with, for example, with, with the point of travel times. Um, you might have people who are suffering from stress and anxiety who, who, would, um, who would benefit from perhaps a later start time. And that's the sort of thing you, you, you'll, want to be, um, you'll want to be thinking about equally. Um, you'd have to think about other, other manners in which you can implement and support employees' mental health. And um, the sort of thing I'm thinking about is um, mental health policies, which, uh, again, a lot of the businesses haven't, had, haven't got those or haven't in implemented those, but they're very useful things. I know that's something we've done at Peacock & Co. recently, 
and, and the sort of thing you want to think about is uh, having a mental health champion maybe Someone the other thing as well for example is do we do we signpost and that's something that you touched on do we signpost how people uh, for managers to recognize what are people struggling with some of you might have health policies you might think about the possibility of including in your in your uh, private health policies the, the possibility of uh, perhaps a cognitive behavior therapy uh, people deal, um, dealing with stress so that we're not just looking at when someone has a, a physical injury but really recognizing increasingly uh, mental health the final bit i'd go on to is employers what we can do as employers to go over and beyond the 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 requirements um, there's a mental health at work commitment which really good venture that you can that you can get involved in it, it helps give you practical tools to to assess what's uh, the condition of, of, of day-to-day with your employees and how to how to be able to help them um, and finally as a very very quick um, whistle to stop the sort of thing you might be thinking about for example is uh, and we talked about whether mental health it now does fall within the a category of disability the sort of things you might be looking at so do we go make sure that we get to um, if refer employees to doctors to, to get an idea of what might be a reasonable adjustment to help them is it appropriate at that point to perhaps make an occupational health referral um, um, and uh, um, increasing awareness for employees as to where they can go, how they can access uh, the, the relevant help uh, that they might need. Uh, again, other things um, that we talked about, promote, promoting work-life balance, offer flexible work, working, uh, and so on and so forth. But uh, essentially, um, the very last point I'll touch on now is... Um, Again, uh, whatever policy you're looking to, to include, is the, the sort of thing you want to be also considering is consulting with those employees at times, making sure you check in with them, making sure that, that they, feel, uh, they feel heard. Uh, and, and it is an ever-evolving uh, situation we find ourselves because obviously we're really at the beginning of this journey and, and, and hopefully uh, we're going to, to, to go further down that road and, and, and um, together with our employees and, and really, if there's any, any issues that, that, that you want to discuss with me afterwards in relation to the sort of policies you might be looking to implement, etc., well, uh, you know where to find me. Um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Omar. Um, so, um, with that, our third speaker I'd like to introduce is here next to me, and that is T. Wu. He's the co-founder and chief technology officer at Pink Squid. Pink Squid is a multiple award-winning creative agency that delivers beautifully intelligent employer branding communication. Now his agency is based in London, but we're lucky um, that he's a resident of Wimbledon. And um, T was born in Hong Kong. He schooled at the Glasgow, Glasgow School of Art, and he employs a team of 70 full-time staff and works with some of the largest and most respected organizations and brands. He helps businesses attract, understand, celebrate, and grow their people. We're thrilled you're here, and I'd like to turn things over to you. Cool. All right, so um, I've got a couple of angles, I think, thanks for the intro. I guess, for me, um, selling a business, starting a business, you know, a creative business in London, and also helping big, huge, massive organizations do that same thing. So in a way, it's almost like, hold on, we're only 70, but you're two, you know, you're two million. Or I guess our sort of client list goes beyond, I guess, numbers. It's about the problems they're having, 
So just to give you an idea, um, we develop employee branding. If that's the first time you've heard of the phrase, um, really quickly, in a nutshell, um, you've heard of corporate branding, corporate identity. Well, we're almost the sort of mirror version of that. Corporate identity is, you know, focuses on products and services. We focus on the people, the motivation, why you should stay, why you should sort of remain, why you should develop within the organisation. So that's more or less ours. I'm just a name drop a little bit in terms of the humble bragging. You know, we work with <coughs> IBM, Vodafone, uh, Amazon. Um, there's a couple of lawyers here. We work with the Magic Circle, Alan and Overy. Um, we work with sort of a mix of sectors as well. So sort of in construction, we work with Lang Raw. Um, in sort of uh, crypto and fintech, we work with uh, London Stock Exchange and Luno, if you know a bit about crypto. So we've got a bit of a mix, but that's not where we started. You know, we started with the hospitality world, and we made our name because we're doing some funky stuff and disruptive stuff in the hospitality. So, you know, people from Nando's to Pizza Express, um, Coats, Costa Coffee. So that was our early life. The first sort of three, four years was really us building sort of a reputation for how we, I guess, change people's mindsets about organizations. And I think a big key about hospitality is that we were helping them, but there were a lot of you know, negative perception about hospitality as a career. So we're doing a lot about how actually hospitality is sort of almost a ground rock to just brilliant, you know, being a brilliant salesperson or organizing people. So in terms of employee branding for us, it's really about picking those stories about what makes you connect with that brand. So employee branding is essentially that. It's just looking at those stories. And what we do in the practical terms is we build websites, we build ads, we have posters out in the world, you know, we sort of make videos, and I think that's sort of the key things. How do we develop content to sort of organize the company's thoughts? Yeah, so hopefully that gives you a bit of a quick nutshell in terms of what employee branding is. And I guess with the 70 people, you think, well, is it just all creatives? Well, no, we've got, we've got you know, a large team of strategists. You know, they'll go into an organization, do those focus groups. You know, I'll, I'll talk about later um, in a little bit about the mechanics of an employee brand. But within there, we've got creatives, absolutely. Um, but also at the same time, we've got project managers, you know, normal suits, we call them. So we have people that just run against the project. So a bit of a eclectic mix. And like I said, there's a bit of a duality in terms of where I'm coming from because I'm building, you know, and retaining talent and organizing my teams so they're working to their best ability. We're sort of developing our own policies as well. You know, recently, I think we're probably one of the smallest agencies, but we've got a, uh, a like-for-like paternity-maternity -like, uh, uh, policy. So, you know, um, it's sort of, um, it's working, but at the same time, it's about maybe coaching ourselves to make sure that we're planning for it, because we've just had a, uh, a new dad that's gone to paternity, and we plan so much for, you know, a woman going out because we can see the difference changing. We didn't plan for that. <laughs> we didn't see any so, so it's us learning how we did that. But I think the sentiment is correct. You know, we wanted to make sure we've got, we've got a, a, a decent, well-balanced workplace where people do their best work. And, you know, and I think a lot of that can be um, said, well, that's fine, T. You know, you've got 70 people. There's a lot of people taking slack. But... Depending on the size of your businesses, I think it's fundamental. You know, you set your, I guess you set your stall out. I think that's what employee branding is about. Just to move on, I think the mechanics of employee brand, I think, uh, well, you know, you mentioned it, it's that psychological contract between the employee, employer. And we sort of set it up in terms of, if we went to the big organization, 
like IBM. You know, it'll take us probably about three months, but we do focus groups, we talk to leadership, we talk to people who've just joined within the first 30 days. We talk to people who are thinking of leaving, we look at exit interviews. But essentially, there are some components to that employer brand, and what we call the EVP, the employer value proposition. So the mechanics that we use as a method, I'll give you to you for free, there's five key engagement pillars. And you can write these down or listen to the podcast, but the first one being uh, reward recognition. The second one being people and culture. Third, um, career development. The fourth being people and culture. And the fifth being purpose and impact. Those five key pillars really is everything that we hear. We can normally sort of take the verbatim info, but we can normally stream them down to these five key pillars. We develop sort of, I guess, hierarchies. We develop spider diagrams and we show actually within your organization which key pillar means a lot more to certain populations. So with that, it's not like a fixed guideline. It's a bit more fluid. It means that we can talk to a diverse audience. But however, the whole value proposition should be enough to give you a global context of who you are. You know, part of that is about being authentic. Part of it is being aspirational. There, are might, there might be things in the EVP that doesn't look like where you are today, but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be there. This is a move forwards. And I think what we've seen in big organizations is a big piece in DEI, where actually, you know, even pre-COVID, you know, CEOs wouldn't put their neck out and say, we stand for something. You're seeing it change now. I mean, we're at the table now, you know, after being in this industry for about 20 years, and I look too young, but yeah. <laughs> we've seen, when we began, we were just another part of marketing, but now we're sitting with the CEOs, with transformation, with HR directors, we're talking to them about how do we change the mindset of the business and what do you stand for? You know, a recent project we did for um, the Vodafone, so we were looking for the next generation um, for the graduate program. And it was really about how do we change or how do we accept the fact that being digital, and at the time it was when uh, BLM Black Lives Matter was happening, Me Too, it was all about digital actually was the catalyst for the change. People were using you know, mobile phone and social and digital to talk to each other about revealing what's been happening. So we took that as a baseline for a campaign that we were working on Vodafone. You know, it's those stories, you know, how do you get some real authentic stories within what you do and just bring it out into the public because recruitment at the moment isn't about just saying, here's a job, would you like it? You know, that's the lowest level of your Maslow's hierarchy. That's just you just getting a job. It's that sort of top bit of the pyramid. What else do you offer? Are you contributing to the, I guess, the global conversation about how do we make change? Like helping technologies, helping, I guess, people from around the world that don't have a voice, using communications. And I'm sort of weaving this, but you know, when we're talking to organizations, we have to make sure that it fits them. You know? So that's one part of it. And um, look, um, these guys came with percentages, so I'm going to give you a couple of stats. <laughs> um, so uh, source being LinkedIn, um, <clears throat> it was based on a question about strong employee branding. So 28% um, in terms of, um, I've got to get this right because the wording. So 28% of people or organizations see a lower turnover of staff if, the, um, if they feel or deem to have a strong employee brand. 43% sees a decrease in their cost of hire when an audience or a candidate sees a strong employee brand. And then this is a massive one. So this is some career builder source. 
76% of a candidate looking for a role, if they apply their values to your employer brand, they're more likely to lower their salary expectation. So there's a couple of stats there. Uh, they're a couple of years old, but I think um, even when we're working with organizations now, I think those stats have increased. You know, we've heard about the, um, the great resignation. People are looking for more than, you know, the, the sort of what's in it for me on the day-to-day. -day. It's that higher plane that they're looking for. Um, and just to finally just finish with maybe a quick practical. I think you're in a really lucky position. I mean, the sort of the, the really light sort of market research I've done in the room. You're in a really lucky position in, in terms of we work with massive organizations where sometimes we just act as a referee sometimes just to split the, like, um, the silos apart and saying, look, this is the direction we should be going. You're in a huge position because you probably aren't going to be able to make those very quick decisions. So with those five pillars that I gave you, write it down because that will last you, you know, for it's lasted us for 13 years, you know. If you ask the question about how we came up with the name, I can tell you later on in the Q&As, but in terms of that story, that origin story that I tell, that's lasted us from day one, and that's based on our employee branding. You know, it's based on what we are and who we are. You can do that now without, you know, 100,000 people telling you otherwise. <coughs> Jot it down now, and when you become 20, 30, 100, 1,000, that will be your core, that will be your DNA. So, hopefully that helps. Um, I'm certainly very interested in the origin story because before today, pink squid and blue chips I thought only existed on a Heston Blumenthal menu. So, uh, um, before we go on to Q&A, and I'm sure lots of you have got lots of questions you want to ask our panellists, we are also blessed in Wimbledon to have the professional body for HR and personal development, Child Institute of Personnel and Development, CIPD, in our town. And so we've got Katrina Haynes-Brown here from CIPD. And Katrina, while you're here, can I ask you for a few thoughts and observations on what you've heard and maybe what CIPD are currently doing or currently seeing in the data that you're, you're working through at the moment? Morning, everyone. Um, I thought it'd be helpful just to share a few insights from some of the reports that we um, put out this year. So mainly the resourcing and talent partner report and also our health and, and wellbeing report. So yes, in terms of recruitment, everyone is struggling to obtain and get the attract well-qualified talent. So of the organisations we surveyed, not to go into too many statistics because we've had quite a lot of those today, but we're seeing 77% are saying that they are struggling to recruit the talent that they need. And that's a 50% increase in the last 12 months or the 12 months prior. What we're also seeing is that 60% of organisations are trying to retain their, their staff. And we're seeing a number of initiatives, about a third of organisations are trying to put initiatives in place to keep and retain staff. So what are they actually doing? What are those initiatives that they're trying to put in place? We're seeing a lot of organisations looking at pay, so just over half are looking at pay. As we've heard from the panel, pay is not the only thing that people look for. We're also seeing an increase in looking at learning and development opportunities. So looking at that career pathway, what does that look like? We talked a little bit about what's in it for me. People want to know, how am I going to grow? How am I going to grow personally and, and professionally? What does this all, what does that look like for me? And um, we're also seeing more people looking at employer voice. So what does engagement look like? What are, what are people in our organisation trying to tell us? And how do we bring that back into the organisation and make some changes? 
Um, and we're also seeing wellbeing, wellbeing initiatives, what we talked about. You've heard a lot about it this morning. And why are we looking at that? You've heard about mental health and the impact that that's having. In terms of absence statistics that we've seen, so in stress and mental health, ill health are in the top five reasons for short-term and long-term absence in organisations. And that's quite significant. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about today that we haven't really touched up on on the panel is that our line managers, and I like to call them people leaders because we're moving, moving, it is evolving. Our line managers are pivotal in the way that these things are managed, handled, and that relationship, those communication skills, those real interpersonal skills are really, really important. It's not just about having a policy in place. It's not just about having a mental health champion. We can have all of those, but the real, real value is in the how. How are people having those conversations day to day? And what do they look like? So I think one takeaway is, what does it look like for managers? Are we looking after our managers? Do they have the skills and experience that they need to manage these really tricky, difficult conversations that we're asking them to manage? How has the role of line managers evolved in your organisation? We're asking managers to do an awful lot. As a manager myself, we're moving to more flexible working arrangements. People are working hybrid. Delina talked a little bit about that, that psychological contact. What does that look like in your organisations? And I think I just wanted to leave one or two takeaways. If there's anything that you could look at, there's so much information. Small organisations, large organisations. You could look at people leaving the organisation. What does turnover look like? How quickly are they leaving? Are you bringing them into the organisation and they're leaving within the first six months? That will tell you, is our employer value proposition working? Are we authentic? Are we doing what we're saying that we're doing? Do people, how do people feel about our organisation when they, when they arrive? So looking at things like absence statistics, looking at what's happening, why are people off? What's happening at your management level? How do people feel about the conversations they're having? Just to kind of leave you with one last statistic in terms of stress. Management relationships are what in the top three reasons for the reason why people are stressed, alongside work, why we're seeing absence related to stress. So there's something to be said about the development of our managers. And just lastly, I'll say, it's not just about having one um, training program or just one it's about that coaching that continuous feedback what feedback are we getting from our line managers and, and just in general what feedback are we getting and how are we adapting our approach so if there's one takeaway i can leave with you is how are our managers supported have our managers got time to actually manage and build these really key relationships that are needed in thank you katrina so I think now we're going to turn it over to our audience to ask questions and you can direct your questions to any of our panelists. Um, and certainly you can all jump in on some of these questions or um, perhaps um, take it uh, individually. We did, we always ask our attendees if there are any questions in advance that you want to submit. So we did get one um, from Dan, Dan Newman, personal trainer. Yeah. Um, you're here. And um, your question um, had to do with well-being and the fact that it's so personal, really. How does an organization take that personal well-being request, if you will, and turn it into something more? I don't know if I represented that right. 
Um, Dolina, I was thinking you might be a great one to tackle that. Can I dig into that question a little bit and just give me an example of if you were an employee and you were asking me as your line manager for some support, what, what does that look like? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think where my question uh, mainly comes from is our experience as a personal training organisation is often perceived much more simply than it really is, like anything. Because we're talking about well-being and where mental health uh, especially relates to physical health. And in a way you have to kind of track back, right? So physical health works when it works around your work, around your kids, things like that. So when we're organising um, how people are going to succeed with their physical or mental health, we're kind of going right back to the beginning. But for that well-being strategy to, um, to bear the fruit, the whole reason that you do it in the first place, your number one thing, in my opinion, is uptake, right? And people will uptake for different reasons by individualization. That's a very long-winded question. I'll try and summarize. What oh, I mean is, okay. you have a policy um, and you have yeah, some so goals. Like one size fits all. Yeah, like yeah. as an organization, I think you, know, you have to answer individual yeah, people's needs. Is there something needs. you learn in NHR yeah. um, is sheep dipping does not work, right? And a lot of companies do that. And when I spoke earlier on about um, uh, companies with complex, you know, amazing well-being strategies and spend loads of money here and all this, you know, they tend to us a sheep dip thing and it's more of a kind of paying lip service to something rather than actually doing something meaningful. And the personalisation point is very interesting because people um, are, are, are de definitely heading towards requiring a more personalised treatment at work with the reward packages, with what wellbeing, you know, initiatives there are, what kind of line management they want, you know. So they're really becoming more fussy in particular about what's important to, to them in the workplace. So as flexible about as you can be on their wellbeing journey, the better. And a lot of you guys wouldn't be able to afford to show them, you know, oh, we can give you the X amount of, of membership here and, you know, 10% off there. You can't do that. So, but it's part of that conversation and giving people time, I think, is important to be able to explore what well-being, physical, you know, physically, um, uh, activities that they can do. Um, you can perhaps at work um, do like many challenges with each other and say we're going to do the December push-up challenge and you know build some team spirit amongst physical well-being. But I think it's about a bit of personalisation, a bit of encouragement, a bit of time, that gift of time for people will really be helpful. But yes, personalisation is the way the world is going with. Right. Um, any other questions? Yes, please. I'm sorry, it's not a question, it's a statement. Um, but I think it's a huge cultural shift for all of us that came with COVID that actually the boundary between work and home is a lot more porous now. Through COVID, we found out about people's families and their pets and what's going on for them at home. Mm. And we need to kind of carry that through. So historically, we might have had very, very rigid boundaries around this is our responsibility as an employer. That is what you do at home. And it's just not like that anymore. And we see it time and time and time again. And I think if we can get our heads around that as employers, that is truly sort of transformational. Yeah, so I can do my job and fill the dishwasher at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you know what? My dog is really, really sick and it's been through me with me all through COVID and now it's not gonna make it. And in the past, not me, <laughs> um, you know, in the past you would have just said, well, you know, that's your dog, nothing to do with us, whereas now we might think that's having an impact, so mm -hmm. those sorts of mm -hmm. things. Can I develop that, um, that, that thought? Um, 
the old, there's the old adage, everybody's right is somebody else's responsibility. How do you think, what responsibilities do you think employees should have or people should have to look after themselves uh, 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 so that it dovetails into the responsibilities of the employer? Is that something to me in particular? Well, anyone else want to take it? Yeah, I can. I guess um, there is a duty of care. And I think um, we, we always say um, that why we, why we employ you is that we want your mind, right? So we're in the creative world. We don't sell any products. We, we want a lot of that stuff in here. And I think um, we know that you know, any slight thing that alters your life, your well-being, it just changes how you develop you know, those projects, how you look at, how you read a brief. You know, um, and inspiration comes from anywhere. And um, if there's something nagging, then it's not going to happen. And we see that all the time. Uh, and, and in terms of our, our duty of care, it actually plays into the, the, the employee's favour. Because if we do enough of it, we get better employees and we get probably more efficient work and productivity. You're talking about, the, you've gone straight back to the employer. What, what responsibilities do you think an employee should have yeah. to so, keep themselves fit? Yeah, so we, we, it's sort of carrot and stick. So we show that first and I guess at the same time then it comes back to, okay, we've, we've created the amazing environment for you. So therefore, there's, a, I guess, a duty of care for you to come back then to the employee. employee. Specifically, so for example, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, it is, there is a suggestion that social media is an incredibly awful um, environment for some people to participate in. It does so yeah. much damage to them. Uh, there, for example, might be a responsibility to look after yourself by filtering your social media and not going to the... Yeah, I, yeah there's a limit. I know, I know where you're coming from, but there is a limit, you know. I guess there's a limit in terms of, you know, we, we as employers with 70 people, we've got a whole range of demographic um, in our in our workforce and I remember you know you know we're in a lucky position we can move around rooms you know we've sort of you know got to a certain point but we were watching and seeing people in their bedrooms doing calls we know they're probably going to be staying there for another 12 hours and they're sleeping there and they get up in the same room so I think there's a limit in terms of you're not, you're not uh, absolutely not answering the question no. <laughs> what responsibilities does an employee what? should an employee have so for example to, to, to filter to filter um, their social media, it's one that immediately springs to mind. Yeah. To keep fit, to, I, to, to get exercise, to all those other things, what responsibilities? Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't, know, I don't know what you're getting to, but I, I would say, I would lean on the side that um, as a business owner, I would make sure the environment is absolutely correct from my perspective. And I think, you know, we've got to treat people um, with respect in terms of what they do. And I think, you know, for the people that we employ, um, it's really about, okay, you know, we've got the environment for you to work. There is respect back. We're not going to put any policies around it. There are policies around it in terms of, you know, sickness, uh, the, the time that we give the people and pay for sickness. We do all that. But I have to say, I would go, I'll err on the side of if we get our bit right, I think I've, I'm going to trust my employees. There is respect back. We're not going to put any policies around it. There are policies around it in terms of, you know, sickness. Uh, the, the time that we give the people and pay for sickness. We do all that, but I have to say, I would go, I'll err on the side of, if we get our bit right, I think I've, I'm going to trust my employees. Okay. Omar, is there a legal perspective that you can address on this? Yeah. Um, I understand the question for, sh for, for sure. Um, certainly, I think what we were talking about, the employee's responsibility, 
I think it, you, it starts with employers. So, for example, yeah. if you've got a situation where, where we're talking and uh, people working from home, then we as an employer will have a duty to the employee to to alert them of the fact that, look, are, are you are you getting regular breaks? Are you getting tea breaks? Are you taking a full hour at lunch? Are you uh, going for a walk? Are you getting out, particularly when we're talking about people who might be living, uh, spending 16, 18 hours at a go, at a time in, in, in their home? Uh, or in, in a particular room, then of course, what we what we will be looking um, to signpost for them are all the all the all the options that are available. This making sure they they look after themselves. The employee does have a duty. You're absolutely right. And where that duty comes in is if if the employee isn't looking after themselves. So they are on social media or they're working hours that 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 don't suit them or or are having a detrimental effect on them. Then of course, we as an employer uh, will be. Uh, our duty again. I know it, it flips, but is is to ensure that 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 we see what the signs are, and then in those situations, if an employee, as a result of that, is is not uh, is not performing, is is not looking, the the health is waning, then then of course we have our duty again. But they also have a duty. So um, and that is to be able to perform their their roles at a standard which is expected of them. And if they if they fall short of that, then of course you can come in as an employer and go, well, we need to have an informal chat. What's happening for you? Um, do we go slightly more formal with a with a capability procedure? So are you are you looking to perhaps um, invoke a disciplinary procedure? I would I would never advocate doing that as a as a start. Always go in with the informal at first and yeah. have a conversation. What what's going on for you? I've noticed that you're 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 um, you're part, you know, you're not, your, your numbers are down or, or you don't seem happy or you're late for work or, or, or um, you're taking increasing days off, etc. Um, we have absence policies, which again, flipping it back to the employer, it, have they got something that we, what I talked about, mental health, is that a disability? If, if it falls in the ambit of the disability, we have a duty to make reasonable yeah, adjustments. Yeah. I, I'm fully on board with that. I'm just interested in... Sorry, I was trying to come to that. The, the point then, if, if we make those reasonable adjustments and the employee is still not, 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 not coming up to... to not bring, holding up their end of the, the bargain and not, not um, taking on their own duty of care to themselves, then, then the reality will be that, that, that you're going to quickly reach a point where that employee, unless they, 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 they um, begin to, to toe the line, that, that sounds a bit um, drastically. Um, and and, and you're that's precisely my point. You said you haven't taken actions you shouldn't take them. But if we don't tell them what the actions are they should take, we're not offering them any guidance on well, those well, things. But we do have... We, that's we, what, I'm that's what, I'm, what I'm saying is what guidance would you give yeah. to them Can I, their responsibilities to look after Yeah, sorry, I, I realised that I sounded a little bit aggressive when I said yeah, that. I, I, what I are you getting at? So I think that's what I was asking, is that what, what scenario are you looking at? So I think you sort of nailed it there. We, we have a really robust um, development program with all our, um, we call them account leads or heads of departments. And it's a two year, it's a two, uh, sorry, two times a year we have um, uh, personal development performance reviews with each team. And they're sort of almost given an annual sort of, I guess, objectives. And I think with that in mind, that's where we look at the sort of performance. And it's, and it's output based, the outcome and output based. So. You know, where we are at the moment, we're flexible working. We, we can't micromanage everybody. Mm. But actually those, you know, I guess those reviews every uh, twice a year gives us an idea, gives us an indicator how people are performing. We also have um, sort of anonymous reviews, surveys for our own company. So we, we send reviews out 
<coughs> of us, how we're performing, how's the leadership performing. So we get an indicator in terms of how we are performing as leadership. You know, and between the two, we can play it out because we can see the patterns. If people say they're not supported, you know, uh, in terms of what they're doing and that's what's coming through because they're not learning. We also see in our reviews about us that we're not putting more effort or resource in terms of building more teams. So I think that sort of is the, sort of the general guidance that we've got. And that's it for this episode of the Business Masterclass podcast. Our thanks to all the speakers, the Wimbledon Club for hosting us, and to the audience who attended and took part so readily. Our thanks also to you for listening. For more information on future events, then please visit our websites, lovewimbledon.org and mertonchamber.co.uk, and please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Feel free to give us a review too, as it helps more people to find us. Thanks again for listening, and join us again soon for another edition of the Business Masterclass podcast. Goodbye.